listening to My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. Each episode, we look at the topics that can make our working lives difficult and explore how you can take action to improve things. We want to help you move from simply surviving work to thriving at work. My Pocket Psych is brought to you by Work Life Psych, a team of workplace psychologists who are experts in coaching, training, and structured development programs. You can find out more about how we help people grow and develop at work by visiting our website, worklifepsych.com. Hello and welcome to episode 41 of My Pocket Psych, the podcast all about the psychology of the workplace. I'm Richard McKinnon and I'm joined by my co-host Pilar Ortiz. How are you today, Pilar? I am well, but a little bit physically tired. <laughs> now, it, it's early morning. What have you been up to to be tired so early in the morning? <laughs> it was just yesterday. I did lots of walking. I did some Zumba. I did lots of stuff that involved being on my feet. So it's, I just feel it because I'm not used to so much, but it's good. It's an energizing tiredness if that exists. It, it does now. Um <laughs> We can go and look for the evidence for it shortly. Uh, apologies in advance. I have now been hit by the hay fever. It's that time of year. So if we have to have any pauses and or uh, badly executed mutes, that will be me uh, at this end. But we'll, 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 do, we'll do our best. So we're into our second group of 40 podcasts as number 40 was last time. And you did say here's to the, the next 40. So we're at 41. Um, before we get uh, into the main topic for today, which is all about coaching, moving on from coaching culture to asking the question, well, does coaching actually work? Uh, let's have a look at some news and uh, updates that we've gathered for this episode. So in productivity news, um, I was in Dublin last week and I ran two uh, short sessions with audiences covering the pillars of productivity. So we spoke all about those principles uh, over the last few months and I got into in, in front of two very different audiences actually. One was a group of psychologists, um, I was an invited speaker at the Psychological Society of Ireland and the other was at a, a meetup at the psychology for business meetup um, of people who are just interested in the application of psychology in the workplace. It was really interesting to walk through those principles with those two different audiences uh, in just 90 minutes and take their questions, hear their conversations and their feedback about it. I suppose my main takeaway was the relevance to these two very diverse audiences of these principles. And that's the intention of talking about principles rather than talking about specific methods or specific rules. And uh, and again, I'm always curious in how similar or different they they were with how in the ways in which these principles resonated with them. So, yeah, yes. Um, with, with my psychologist colleagues at the PSI, what many of them were doing was making links between the principles I was talking about and maybe unearthing how they were reflected in psychological concepts mm. that they were familiar with. So they weren't all organizational psychologists. There was counseling and clinical in there and some academic psychologists as well. So they were coming at this from lots of different perspectives, which was great. I, I learned some stuff and we were able to talk about how the interaction between these principles to help you be more productive would, of course, interact with your well-being 
for example, um, especially when we were looking at the principle of play and disconnection from work and recovery from work and engagement in non-work activities, how that relates to your, your well-being and how you deal with pressure effectively and in a sustainable way with, with help, healthy, um, healthy coping strategies. Um, with the other group, um, the meetup group, it was very much about how are you going to make sense of these principles for you in your job and what questions do they prompt when you think about them. So less of the um, psychological theory and more of the practical implementation. Mm. And that was really interesting for me as well um, to have an audience that hadn't necessarily heard of these before and to try and explore what it meant for them and what they were going to put into practice. So the questions from that were, were equally interesting, but different. Mm -hmm. And have you got any, do you remember any of them or does your hay fever, <laughs> has your hay fever <laughs> blocked those, those neurons? <laughs> I, I, I sound slower than I am, <laughs> put it that way. Um, I, actually, there was uh, some really nice feedback at the PSI event about the inclusion of the play principle. Um, so that it wasn't all about, you know, for example, get more done, yeah. churn more work out, but reflecting the need to um, recover and actually take this whole person perspective. There's you at work and there's you outside of work. And it's useful to reflect on both of those aspects of you, no matter how different or similar you are. So it was really nice to talk to someone after the event um, about that. I think with the, the, the other one, the, there were a lot of, um, what about questions? How would I do this in my context? Uh, also, people sharing their ideas with each other. So we had group discussions in the meetup. It, it wasn't a lecture as such. So what I did was I, I covered a, a principle at a time, and then one of my colleagues in the meetup facilitated a, dis a discussion with the entire group. And we had about, I think, about 40 people at that. And they would break into groups and come back with their ideas, their questions, and what it meant for them. And what was great was they were swapping ideas that worked for them with the entire group so people could take away things to experiment with and just have a go with. Um, and of course, the number one question at any meetup is when can I get the slides? I, I really want to look at this again. I want to have a resource to move forward with. So that's always a great a great piece of feedback. People want to look through it again. Yeah, excellent. Well, listeners, if you are a new listener to this uh, podcast, to this show, we covered the principles of productivity all for for uh, seven or eight weeks. <laughs> and, if, yeah. if you are, and, and if you are a regular listener and you want to refer back to these two principles of play and prioritizing. It was that that was right, wasn't it? Um, uh, play mm -hmm. is episode 36 and priorities is episode 33. What else have you been up to? Have you or, or, or is well, that Thank you for that, Pilar. <laughs> I was reminding people of how they can find out more. Um, I ran our Resilience 101 workshop for a new client uh, in London the other week. Um, I love doing these sessions. Um, it's part of our Essentials series. So it's just a 90-minute session on a topic. It either provides a great introduction to something or fits into those nice lunch and learn sessions that lots of organizations run. So you don't have to be out of the workplace for a whole day. And it's about an introduction, an explanation, and then some practical implementation. And the reason I wanted to bring it up was we had a really interesting conversation about this concept of the end of my tether. So the discussion about the healthiness of kind of exploding every so often mm -hmm. and letting your anger out and, you know, well, when I'm at the end of my tether, that's as much as I can take. And then I just have to dot, dot, dot. And, and actually, 
we can all identify with having a really bad day and lots of things going wrong. Um, but what I was trying to do is was get people to reflect on, well, how are you contributing to that yourself? You're not controlling the events. Obviously, bad stuff happens. But what are you saying to yourself about them? And are you potentially falling into the trap of saying, if one more thing like this happens to me today, then dot, dot, dot. And then you're almost building up to um, another bad experience or another setback, but it, it could be a very small thing. Um, and so this concept of I get to the end of my tether, I said, well, what if you didn't have a tether? <laughs> you know, what, what if there wasn't a limit and you examined these d difficulties from a different perspective and you didn't go looking for one more thing or, or explore the concept in terms of there's a limit to what I can take today? Um, and it sparked a really interesting conversation. Um, one, the difficulty of, you know, not experiencing anger and frustration um, to the point where you, you know, blow up in someone's face when they've made a small error, uh, but also coming at it from uh, a psychological flexibility perspective where it's, well, you, you don't have to act on the emotions you feel. And so therefore, if you're setting yourself up re reaching the end of this tether, um, then that's going to be more difficult. If you look at it differently and, and explore these setbacks individually and focus on what you would like to do and how you would like to behave and what your ideal self would do or you at your best would do, then the concept of a tether is kind of irrelevant. I, I don't know if that makes sense. Does it, do you, do you, are you familiar with the phrase, end of oh, my yeah, tether? Oh, yeah, yeah, completely. And, okay. and I okay. really like that perspective. I've never thought about it like that. Um, luckily, I don't have many situations where I get to that stage, but I can think of nice. one now actually where I did explode at the end uh, without even realizing it. But I really like that concept of thinking, well, these are all single things and it helps to not think of them piling up in some way. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. I really like that and, and, and thinking, okay, well, how will we navigate that? In a way, it's making me think of making more space for stuff to happen in, uh, and, and just expanding almost uh, the bubble of, it's, I'm not saying it very well, but it's expanding the bubble of what we can take and even not using the expression mm -hmm. of what we can take. I, quite, I really like that. I'll, I'll have to, it will have to sink in properly so I can articulate it better. Yeah, I really like that. Well, it, it was a, a standout conversation for me because every time we talk about resilience with, with a small group of people, it, it can take on a very different form because it needs to be relevant to mm. them. And of course, one of this conversation came from um, those sort of episodic pileups of difficulties that, that happen from time to time in roles. So it might be oh, at the end of this month or every, every month, there's this kind of reporting period and life gets really difficult at that time. Or during the summer months, it gets really difficult because my colleagues are on holiday and there's almost an expectation that it will be really tough. And so we build up to that rather than anticipating it and seeing what we could do with that. And, and so, yeah, we, we go looking <laughs> we go yeah. looking for it and and of course we explored how it's not really that great for you to explode um mm -hmm. it can feel you know cathartic but it's not a great way of coping especially when you think about the impact on other people yeah so um i, I came across an article on hr review about stress at work um so you know talking about well-being um and how it's being linked to poor management in the workplace and i thought this brief article was was really interesting for for a couple of reasons one it seems like every time i come across uh an article about stress and strain in the workplace reporting of it seems to be going up and up and and of course 
you know, it, it's, it's the perception of this, which is really, really important. You know, do you think as an employee, you're experiencing uh, pressure to the extent that it's turning into something that is, is bad for you? Um, but the attribution of this was really interesting. So there's uh, about a thousand people um, surveyed in this. Um, heavy workloads comes out as a big problem. 62% of people reporting that's but they attribute that to poor management. So this is the story that the workload that causes the stress is because of managers and how they're dealing with that. Um, and it, but next comes management style, um, and that's 43% of people, and that's a rise of uh, 11 percentage points on people reporting management style as being a contributing factor to their stress at work. And for me, this, this underlines uh, one of the, the, the challenges when we talk about stress and well-being in the workplace is that we can sometimes fall into the trap of looking at very separate boxes of things we could do. So by that, I mean, well, this team is stressed. Let's teach them how to cope with stress. Well, yeah, we could. But let's look at the origins the causal factors, the stressors, and maybe walk back a couple of steps so that we could prevent it happening again in the future. Um, and, and, and I think this, this flags the role of giving managers the skills that they need to do a good job of allocating resources, allocating workload, and knowing how they can cope well when they're under pressure. So it comes back to not just giving people an opportunity for stress management, but also spills over into maybe the topic of um, learning and development and management development. But then that also relates to how we design these jobs in the first place. So can that manager effectively do that job? Can those people on that team effectively do those jobs? Have they been designed well so that one person could do them or is there just too much anyway? And what's interesting is the attribution of pressure to workload and management style. I wonder how many other factors are at play. It's a subjective evaluation, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, but it just seems to be going up and up. Yeah, I was hoping that they'd go a bit into a bit more depth as to into management styles. Um, I would have mm -hmm. liked a bit more because that's interesting. Um, and as you say, it's it's the holistic view that we need to take when we're looking at stress management, not just tackling that stress, <laughs> but what is it that's yeah. contributing to it? And that seems to be the really difficult. Uh, yeah, that's difficult. It's it's almost like um, we need we need some resilience training for people. Well, okay, but why? Yeah. <laughs> what is it about this workplace? So could we go back to first principles and maybe look at how things are set up in the first place? Otherwise, it could be that this training is a drop in the ocean. And that, that's a conversation I had at the Resilience 101 session. You know, it's mm. <laughs> it's not a replacement for good jobs or well-designed work. Yeah. And this article, so listeners, if you are if you are listening along in a place where you can type the, the title of the article to uh, scan through it as you listen to the conversation, it's called Rise in Stress at Work Linked to Poor Management, Common New Research Finds, and it's in hrreview.co.uk. Of course, Richard will uh, stick the link to that, but just in case you want to Google that as you're listening. I have one thing that... I won't say disturbed me because maybe that's too strong, but this sure. they they have they use this word which I've never heard used before, which is levyism as opposed to presenteeism. And they say um, uh, nearly two thirds, sixty three percent, have observed levyism, such as using holiday leave to work. So the opposite mm. of presenteeism, which is when we're there but not doing much, is we're not there but we are working even though we said we wouldn't. That 
re- that is very worrying. It is, and yet I'm not surprised by it because I encounter this in coaching conversations on a super regular basis. At at one end, it's people using their weekends as a sort of bucket of resource that they can use to finish off things that they haven't managed to get done during the Monday to Friday if they're a full-time employee, but also the the run-up to a holiday to get things finished before they leave. So many people will bring unfinished things with them or find themselves in the situation where they have to, at a minimum, read some things to prepare for their first day back at work while they're on holiday. And that's sad. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, it's 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 why well, it's a very long conversation. <laughs> um, but well, m- maybe we could look at that in another episode. Definitely, listeners, let us know what you think about this because this is uh, this is always well. Is that an issue? Is it not? Uh, should it, you know? Is it an issue if I decide? Is it an issue if I feel pressured to it? It's so we'd love to hear at uh, worklifepsych.com. You have a contact form there. Um, can I make a reading recommendation, Richard? Something's come please to do, mind. Please do. So mainly, well, anyone will enjoy it. I think it's very, um, it's a very condensed book. Uh, and if you de- if you are um, if you're creating strategy, if you're leading a business, especially if you're making these kind of decisions that affect these kind of behaviors, it's definitely worth a read. It's by the guys who um, who run Basecamp, so Jason Fried, and I never remember <laughs> the name of the other guy. And the book is called It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. And it addresses all these things that we are just used to, like work overload, working so uh, over the times that we'd rather rest, etc. And it's it's really interesting. We might not be able to apply a lot of it, but actually just reading through and the concepts might just help us find that one thing that we can tweak to make it less crazy at work. Mm, nice. I must have a look yeah. at that because I haven't I haven't read that. And this this concept of using your holidays to work. Yeah, it's, it's very subjective, as you say. Yeah. It, you know, some, some someone might find that it relieves a bit of pressure or it helps them feel connected. And for someone else, even accidentally receiving an email and looking at it on their phone could be enough for them to feel really resentful yes. that there's an intrusion. So again, we need to remember the subject, subjective nature of this. But it 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 calls out to all kinds of things like teaching people how to manage their communication devices, yeah. managing expectations of contactability, role modeling. If senior people are working when they're on their holidays, you know, what does that mean for uh, expectations of, of more junior people? And do they think they should be connected and et cetera, et cetera. And, and what does it mean for well-being if you have been working during your inadverted commas holiday? Yeah. So, yeah, I think we should come back to that one, um, maybe to help people prepare for their planned summer holidays this year. At Work Life Psych, we believe that coaching is for everyone. And so we have created a cost-efficient, flexible and impactful solution we call Coach on Campus. This means coaching can be made available to more junior employees, emerging talent and technical specialists within the organization without incurring the cost or commitment of executive coaching packages. A work-life psych coach is based on the client site on a regular day each month with a schedule that is dedicated to that organization. We'll facilitate six one-hour-long coaching sessions throughout the day. To find out more, visit worklifepsych.com slash coachoncampus. 
So the um, next article that jumped out at me and I want to share is from The Guardian from Monday 20th of May, which um, I I read this because of the headline. And isn't that how news works? <laughs> <laughs> and by the time I got to the end of it, I had a completely different view. Uh, limiting screen use for one week may improve teenagers' sleep. Uh, so I thought, well, we've talked about this before, this notion of how much time we spend in front of screens and the link or non-link with uh, sleep disturbance and our well-being and fatigue and all of those things. This is a report of um, a, a conference submission. And what's really nice about this is they outline what the writers are saying, but then they have the input from uh, a professor of applied statistics who then critiques this. But basically, let, let me just quote from this. Um, the new research from the Netherlands found that teenagers who had more than four hours per day of screen time had a sleep onset and wake-up times on average 30 minutes later than those who recorded less than one hour per day of screen time, as well as more symptoms of sleep loss. The team conducted a trial to assess the effects of blocking blue light with glasses and no screen time during the evening on the sleep pattern of 25 frequent users. I hope you're spotting some of the flaws in this as I go through <laughs> it. Um, and so uh, the, 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 the researchers say, here we show uh, very simply that these sleep complaints can be easily reversed by minimizing evening screen use or exposure to blue light. Based on our data, it is likely that adolescent sleep complaints and delayed sleep onset are at least partly mediated by blue light from screens. Now, if it had ended there, what might be your takeaway from that, Pilar? Well, that all we need to do is uh, reduce that uh, blue light uh, screen time at night and teenagers will have a wonderful sleep every night. Exactly. <laughs> I, I think there's a sort of a leading element to that. And uh, if you are the parent of a teenager or you're a teenager and you're concerned about your own sleep, that might be something that you decide you're going to do. However... Um, I think a, a lot more work would need to be done for us to extrapolate from this. One, that's a quite a small sample. Two, teenagers are a population who experience a lot of sleep disturbance anyway. Um, that, you know, that there's, there's sleep, the organization of their sleep is different to adults. And so that's why we have a lot of this, um, you know, um, sleep uh, inertia. Or, or sleepiness in the morning when they need to attend school or college because they're operating in a different time zone, basically. <laughs> it's like asking someone who's just got off a transatlantic flight to, to chair a meeting when they haven't had enough sleep. And so they're an unusual, in the nicest sense of the word, an unusual group to explore anyway. Um, but there's lots of other reasons why um, there might have been an improvement there. Um, one, it's self-reported, and we know we're not very good at measuring our own sleep. We often dream that we've been awake when we've been asleep. Um, and so sleepiness, as opposed to sleep quality and duration, might be a, a better way of looking at that. And of course, we could have had just the impact of being studied. Yeah. If you're asked to do this and you're doing something unusual, like glasses blocking blue light, that may lead you to believe that it's had an effect when it has had no effect. So I just thought I'd flag this one up because one, we've talked about it before, but it's a really good article in the sense that they get that other perspective and it leaves you with potentially a different conclusion as in I don't need to buy some blue light blocking glasses today maybe more work is required on this yeah I love that as a reminder of really going beyond the headline yeah thank you for that yeah um 
effectiveness news. Trying to remember what I was going to talk about next. Um, I uh, listened to the latest episode of Adam Grant's Work Life podcast. Um, it's not one I listen to every single time, and that is purely uh, a function of my time available. But the the one I listened to most recently, I thought was a great um, episode. Uh, it was fad busting with Freakonomics. So um, uh, an episode all about the concept of workplace fads and a discussion about from a evidence-based perspective how some of them don't stand up to scrutiny. And the reason I've included this, apart from I really like the fact that people try and talk about fads and expose them for what they are from a scientific perspective, is that I think this would be a great episode for managers to listen to because it, it sort of picks apart some of those zombie-like fads that won't go away, those beliefs that exist in the workplace, um, and it explores them from this scientific pr perspective. The one that jumped out at me was I had a great discussion about learning styles. And that is something that just, no matter what psychologists say and how much data they present and how much it's discussed, this notion of learning styles persists. I'm not sure what we can do about that, but this is another great discussion picking apart this idea that each of us has an innate way of learning and we have to reflect that in how we learn new things. Mm -hmm. Any any of the others? I, I haven't listened to this uh, to this particular one. What do you remember? What else? Um... They also and um, I'm going to brace for my Twitter feed. <laughs> uh, they also explore the MBTI, uh -huh. and it's pros and cons. Uh, but there's, a, there's a, a, quite a few things in there. I mean, they, they also looked at the, the popularity of open offices, open plan offices. Mm. Um, the, the notion of uh, that you need 10,000 hours of practice to be an expert in something. Some of these neat little things that people internalize and go, well, of course it's true because doesn't everyone believe this? Mm. And it's, it's a really nice, light discussion. It's only, uh, it's under 30 minutes long. I could learn from this. Um, mm. But it, it covers quite a few, um, and it's done in front of a, a live audience as well. So I'd recommend that, Fad Busting with Freakonomics. I'll put a link to that specific episode of Work Life uh, with Adam Grant yeah. in the show notes. And uh, listeners, if you do enjoy that one, uh, well, I, I also listen every now and then to the Work Life uh, podcast with him. And I also listen to the Freakonomics, which is a really good show where they really balanced every time they bring they, they might bring a guest to uh to to tell about their story and how great it was but they do look at how <laughs> how it might not have been um they they always it's so balanced uh and also if you do enjoy adam grant there's an episode in the podcast zigzag where he does something very similar to what you're describing but he looks at things like holacracy and self-management so a little bit different to what we discuss in this show but also anyone who's interested in oh what is really going on there and you know what are these things i'm hearing about it and is this really working again he brings such a balanced and clear explanation of what those concepts are and how they're being implemented so i recommend that too great i will have a listen to that one um, i know from just from my own experience uh, when running uh, management development programs or even leadership development programs every so often someone will be brave enough to put up their hand and say I'm sorry, what does that actually mean? Yes. We keep using this phrase and I have no idea what it is. And that's so refreshing yes. <laughs> to have a discussion about some of the, uh, the buzzwords and maybe challenge them or maybe explain what's implied, but maybe that it doesn't work where you work.
Okay, so let's move on to the, the main topic for today's episode, asking the really challenging question, does coaching work? So, Pilar, does coaching work? Can I say it depends? <laughs> that is a superb answer. <laughs> We've used that answer before, but it's, it's absolutely correct. Um, it, is that even a helpful question to start with? Mm -hmm. So... <laughs> Is is it what 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 could we ask instead or uh, then what yeah so I uh, yeah I mean so a hornet's nest <laughs> time but um, uh, does coaching work implies that coaching is one mm -hmm. thing and um, I consistently say when having this conversation that's like asking does does medicine work do do drugs work for illness well what drugs for what illnesses, in what kind of patients, at what stage of their lives, uh, given their existing health conditions, etc., etc. So, does coaching work isn't exactly a helpful starting point because it implies there's a yes/no answer to that, and I don't believe it's yes or no. Um, as you say, it depends. I think we need to be more specific when we're talking about that. So, what kind of coaching? Who is the coach? What methods do they use? Who are they working with? Uh, why did that person end up in a coaching context in the first place? Um, what is the focus of their coaching work? How long are they working together? What kind of an organization are they in? How supportive is it of behavior change? So you can see where I'm mm -hmm. going. So many factors that I, I think we should take account of because if we replace the word coaching with training well does training work yeah it does sometimes but who's doing the training and who's designed it etc etc so um i don't think we should look at coaching as one um a single thing um because it can be so different depending on the methods being used the the concepts underlying it the ethos of the coaching and and when and where it's being done and on the person um, um receiving the coaching i imagine with all the factors as how ready they are etc uh, etc et absolutely um as, as i've said before when we've talked about coaching you know my ideal coach e is someone who is really up for doing some hard work and wants to make a difference uh, in themselves and, and wants to work towards a meaningful goal. My nightmare is when I'm told this person's been causing so much trouble. Uh, we've told them <laughs> they need coaching. And so we want you to fix that problem. And I don't do that um, because it's highly unlikely that individual is motivated to work with a coach. Um, coaching at gunpoint is not a great place to start. Um, and, and so while you might decide coaching could benefit you because you've had so much feedback about some of your behaviors or feedback about your performance and you've come to the realization that you need to try something else. But if you haven't come to that realization and you're being forced into it, coaching is not going to work there. Coaching is not the solution to that problem. And so where you're at as the coachee, what your motivations are, that's an important factor to bear in mind. It also makes me think that a lot of the time when we're talking about coaching or training, it seems like it's a very uh, unidirectional uh, process and also where a lot of the responsibility lies on the coach or if we're talking about training on the trainer. And, and, and mm -hmm. I think we miss the fact that actually the person undergoing the coaching has to also work really hard. 
And I think a lot of the time we're seeing that with putting this, uh, the, this is what's going to solve the problem. So we go, okay, great. And actually, no, it's going to be hard. We still have to work really hard through that to make it work. Exactly. And, you know, both parties are working together, coach and coachee. They've got different roles, but it's a, it's a sort of a partnership rather than doing coaching to the other person. And that's a frequent um, misunderstanding I encounter. And so that's why it's so important to talk about coaching, demystify it and explain where it can be useful and where it's a no-no because it's not a panacea. But um, I really liked this summary of the research that's uh, shared by our friends at Science for Work. Um, Science for Work do a great job of um, summarizing, simplifying, communicating good quality science uh, about the workplace. And they've uh, done a summary on workplace coaching, um, reflecting um, a summary of research to identify what is linked to good coaching outcomes. And some we've touched on already, and I will link to this um, article, but it is effectively a, a one-pager online, and there's a nice little infographic, even if you just want to go to that. And, of course, you can go back to the original um, uh, piece of research if you, if you want to get into the detail. But what the research shows is one of the, the key um, uh, factors is the client's learning goal orientation. In other words, my aim is to improve. Mm-hmm. And that brings me back to, well, if I don't even think I need to do anything differently or if I'm being forced into this, that's not going to have a good impact on the coaching relationship or the coaching outcomes. There's also the client's self-efficacy. In other words, I can do this. And that's something we often explore. The individual might have motivation to make a change or believe that a change is very important to them, but they may have doubts about their ability to do those things. And often that's because they think it's one thing that they need to do. Um, or they visualize um, the, the discomfort or the setbacks they think that they will experience. But self-efficacy is, is super important here. And motivation, um, as, as they put it here, I'm going to give coaching my all. And so those positive um, individual coachee uh, aspects are important and we need to think about if, if coaching is going to be uh, an intervention for someone's one-to-one development, we need to think about those quite a bit before um, lining someone up for coaching. Mm. And then there's the trust between the, the coach and the coachee. Can someone speak openly? Can they share um, their perspectives freely? Can they admit their doubts, their fears? Can they give feedback uh, in the moment? And of course, that's both party's responsibility but the coach needs to do a great job of explaining confidentiality and build up a relationship so they can demonstrate you can be open to me so this is a summary of what they call the likely links with outcomes where there have been consistent findings and it's higher overall quality evidence so again from an evidence-based perspective these are factors that are consistently coming out as being important uh, for coaching outcomes it's also making me think of coaching as something that's very fluid uh, and um, I don't know I just (laughs) you can't see me listeners or Richard for that matter but I'm moving my hands because of all the things you're saying and how it's not something that can be rigid because even as you're moving through um, as coachee lots of stuff can be happening Uh, you might be identifying things you weren't aware of you might be more ready at some points than others and it's just it it feels very fluid it it 
absolutely is. It's a very dynamic mm. experience. And even if you think on top of all of those, things can change around you. The world can change around you. Um, and especially when I'm working with very senior people, they'll come in and sit down and we might start with, so what have been the big changes since we last spoke? Um, that could have an impact on what you're working on or just your general mood um, and, and factors like self-efficacy, self-belief, uh, levels of motivation. So absolutely, it's, it's not like going through a preset training program where everyone will go through it at the same pace or encounter the same content. It's a much more dynamic experience, but it won't be a successful experience if we don't think about those individual characteristics. The 21st century workplace brings new and varied challenges. This means we need a new approach to work, but without the gimmicks or one-size-fits-all approaches. Pillars of productivity is just that. A new kind of productivity training for professionals. No inflexible rules or systems, just a pragmatic approach to getting more of the right things done in the right way at the right time. The course can be delivered in-house across a single day or four two-hour sessions or online at a self-directed pace. To find out more, visit worklifepsych.com slash pillars of productivity. Now, interestingly... Some of the things that have inconsistent findings or are reflected in lo lower overall quality evidence are things that are often spoken about. And the one that jumped out at me from this was similarity between the coach and the coachee. Coach and client share similar backgrounds, values, gender, etc. That is not something that keeps coming up as uh, an important um, evidence-based finding. Although, as human beings, we might think it would be better if they're similar. I'd never thought of that. I'd, I'd never want someone who was similar to me <laughs> as my coach. <laughs> It's really interesting. So, so is this something that we think it helps sometimes then? Well, I've, I've encountered it in terms of um, we, we need a coach who understands this industry. And you, you need to have coached a lot of people in this industry before you can coach someone in, in our firm. Or this person really needs a coach of X gender. Okay. Um, because they are X gender. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And I'm not saying those things don't play a part at all, but a, a good quality coach doesn't need to know everything about an industry in order to challenge perspectives, identify goals, work with someone. Um, it could be argued that over-familiarity with an industry or a sector or a business could lead to them assuming things and having a shared um, overlapping perspective on something um, where things aren't explored um, with sufficient rigor. Um, and the thing I find really useful as being a an external coach who goes into organizations is I have the, the, you know, the ability or license to ask very basic questions, very naive questions. And they can also be really powerful questions. So, um, the, the other one that jumped out at me from this one was supervisor support, which they define as the manager is interested and supportive of the effort that comes out as an inconsistent finding with lower overall quality evidence. Um, To me, it, it makes sense that you might hope that the coachee's manager is supportive of, of what they're doing. Sometimes um, the manager isn't the person who it, it suggests that they take advantage of coaching. Maybe it's because they're on some kind of development program. Uh, 
What we would hope for is them going into an environment that's supportive of their changes that they're trying to make and the impact it has. But it might be that it's um, the other people that they work with and not necessarily their manager. So I think all that means is you, you don't need to have a coach that's similar to you and you don't need to have a manager who's 100% on board with this uh, always in order to get good coaching outcomes. That was surprising at, at first at first listen. <laughs> um, yeah, but yeah, I yeah. suppose that, it, yeah, it, it makes sense. You can be growing a lot uh, um, and you can be discovering a lot of stuff. And also sometimes I think, I imagine you can go through coaching and not have massive changes in behavior on, or great insights that people around you see. Sometimes you might have developed in some way and you notice this one thing that's changed uh, within you. And maybe that also takes time to manifest itself and uh, in around in others around you. So I found that really interesting. It brings all, all sorts of things also about the expectations of what uh, coaching can look like and and um, yeah really interesting yeah and of course you know I've lost count of the number of times that the focus of the coaching at least in part has been about improving the relationship with the line manager right or at a minimum navigating the challenges that that relationship brings so um, I, I think if you have a very supportive manager and they're they're really um, keen to give you feedback along the way and support the changes that you're going to make that that won't harm your coaching experience but it it can be that you could have a successful outcome without all of that support from your manager um, so I think the 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 um, research here is summarized on a, a systematic literature review and it included 117 studies it prompted me to think about one of the challenges in evaluating coaching is getting good quality mm -hmm. data And by that, I mean before and after measures. Um, look, you know, if you're uh, evaluating an intervention, that intervention needs to be the same intervention. And with coaching, it's often not. You see yes. what I mean? If everyone was getting the same drug for the mm. same illness, you could then control for, you know, gender differences and age differences and, and so on. But actually, the, the, the way that coaching could manifest could be very, very different in the room. So... I'm not saying it's impossible and we shouldn't try. Uh, we should try to evaluate coaching and have firm outcomes that we're working towards and, and evaluate success factors. We shouldn't focus on the enjoyability <laughs> of the coaching because uh, that could be a bit of a, a red herring. But I think this underlines that there's lots of questions that aren't being answered. There's factors here not appearing that we might think could be. And it's not because they're not supporting uh, supportive of coaching success. It may be a factor of the way research is conducted or the difficulty in getting that good quality data. I would love to see whether enjoyment is a factor in the relationship continuing it's really interesting because because it's we're looking at the evidence and they're saying enjoyment is not a factor um it's about the outcomes however i wonder how much that enjoyment fuels or hinders how much the coachee really engages with the whole process like you say it's just not something mm. that's easy to look into and evaluate no and uh, of course we know that um Uh, the rapport, the the quality of the relationship is is important, and it's a consistent finding in in uh, coaching research. But that's not the same as 
friendliness oh, no. No, no, <laughs> or closeness. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of coaching can be quite challenging. And that's what you're there to do. You're not there to make new friends. But um, maybe instead of um, happiness or enjoyment, yes. the focus is on achievement of goals and on building self-efficacy and on making a difference and on being able to see how you've developed as a person while working with this coach, but while you're doing these things. There's no magic dust that, that a coach can sprinkle. There's no magic wand. You're doing this. And, and I think that's why we need to have that focus on, on outcomes uh, as well as process. Uh, yeah, and also I'm thinking enjoyment. What is enjoyment? I might not having what I feel is a good time or a laugh, but actually because I'm <laughs> feeling it's doing something to me, I might be enjoying it. So that's another word that, um, yeah, we could <laughs> be more specific about. The same as with happiness also. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So in, in asking ourselves the question, does coaching work? The answer, as you said, is it depends. And we need to prompt that uh, or follow that up with lots of other questions so that we don't, I would argue, automatically assume coaching is the answer. Uh, and it frequently, the answer is not yet or not now, but maybe later. Uh, it may be that coaching may not help as much as some on-the-job learning or technical training uh, or, or structured training it, it it you could benefit maybe more by you know working with a different team for a while or getting exposure to different work environments so it's it's not as I said a panacea for all development um, areas that conversation needs to be had on a on a case-by-case -case basis so We've come to the end of another episode, episode number 41. It won't be long before we're celebrating episode number 80. Uh, I've, I've no doubt. Um, so listeners, if you've uh, enjoyed hearing about any of those news items, if you've thought about coaching, if you've had a great coaching experience, if you've had a not so great coaching experience, or if you're a manager who's thinking about taking advantage of coaching for members of your team, we'd love to hear your views. We'd love to hear your stories or your questions and get in touch with us via Twitter at mypocketpsych or drop us a longer message via worklifepsych.com slash contact. Until next time, Pilar. Uh, I hope you're feeling more energized soon and you get over your Zumba. Um, I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to be able to breathe properly soon <laughs> as well. That's another question. Do antihistamines work? <laughs>